And so last week we looked at one of the more familiar passages in the Bible, the feeding of the 5,000. It's one of the few events that is recorded in every one of the Gospel accounts. And so what we find in these six verses in the Gospel of John is what seems to be like an interruption in the event of the feeding of the 5,000 and the teaching or the discourse that will take place in the following day as Jesus presents himself to this massive crowd which numbered between 15 and 25,000 by most accounts that he would present himself as the bread of life. And so it will take us several weeks to get through this discourse that we're going to look at. But prior to Jesus feeding these people, he had been teaching them not only about himself, but about the kingdom of God. He had been performing a number of miraculous works in their midst, healing people, cleansing them of their leprosy, making them to walk again when they were unable to do so. He'd been involved in meeting their, phys- their spiritual needs in the content of his teaching. And so he capped it all off on this one day by feeding them late in the day, this massive crowd. If you remember the little boy who had a lunch for himself, that little lunch was multiplied to feed thousands of people and the estimate would be somewhere between fifteen and 25,000 pounds of food just continued to pour forth as Jesus broke the bread and broke the fish and distributed to the crowd. The crowd had as much as they wanted and the leftovers was enough for each of the twelve disciples to have a basket full which would most certainly sustain them for the following day. This great crowd that Jesus had been teaching and healing and feeding were so impressed by what they had seen that we read in John 6.14 that their assumption was that this is truly the prophet that has come into the world. This is the prophet that Moses would have prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18.15 where he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. And the crowd had determined that this, in fact, was that very prophet. But Jesus knew their hearts and knew what he was intending to do when we see in verse 15 that Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, He was not ready to be crowned as king, and their motivation for making him the king was their own selfish desire. After all, this was somebody who would feed them and heal them and deliver them from Roman oppression, and so they were looking for a political ruler, a physical king, as opposed to the one and only son, the Messiah, who is going to come and meet and address the spiritual needs of the nation of Israel. So this massive group of people had in their heart this desire to use Jesus for their own benefit, to meet their own needs. And what you and I need to see is that if we aren't careful, we will fall into that same trap. It's very, very subtle, but it can still be very, very true in our lives. For example, when we want comfort from sorrow, we turn to Jesus. When we want strength and difficulty, we want to turn to Jesus. When we want peace in the midst of great turmoil, then we turn to Jesus. When we get really, really sick and we need His physical healing help, then there's nobody quite like Jesus. Isn't that right? But what happens when, the, when Jesus, through the person of the Holy Spirit, comes to us and says, I want you to die to yourself and serve me in this way. I want you to renounce your possessions and give this in this way. I want you to serve me in a way that reflects who I really am. Well, we're not always so quick to want Jesus in that same way, are we? 
So we need to be careful that we don't want to come to him on our terms instead of coming to him on his terms. And this is exactly what Jesus will expose in the hearts of the people in the passages to come. But in between this discourse that we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks and the feeding of the 5,000 is this fifth miracle that is recorded in the Gospel of John, and that is Jesus walking on water. Now Luke is the only one of the Gospels does not give an account of this, John gives the most compressed account, and so we're going to look at what Matthew and Mark add to this story to help us understand a little bit more about exactly what was taking place. Now, in the past, we have talked about typology, and we have talked about motifs. For example, Adam was a type of Christ, and Moses was a type of Christ, and David was a type of Christ. Typologies are all throughout the Bible as they foreshadow the person of Christ who would eventually come. There's also the motif that we have. We have the shepherd motif. God is our shepherd. There's the father motif where we are his children and he is our father. There is the body and the bride motif where we are the body of Christ and he is the bridegroom. So there's motifs and typologies all throughout the Bible. There's another big theological word and that word is theophany. There are theophanies all throughout the scripture which will direct us into this very specific encounter with God. Now, in this particular miracle that we're going to see, there is a theophany that plays off of not only Moses leading the people out of bondage, out of the bondage of the Egyptians through the Red Sea into the promised land. There's also this theophany, which has this theme of impending danger, which is going to come in death unless God shows up and does something. And when God does show up, he's going to speak a very significant word of assurance to his people. Now, what's missing in this theophany, which is often in the others, is a commissioning that would come to the person who has been rescued. So it's important to understand a little bit about this theophany that is going to be displayed here and the parallels that take place from the Exodus, remembering that the Passover was near and the Passover was instituted with Moses bringing the people out of the, the nation of Egypt. You had the angel of death that was going to come. You had the, the Egyptian army bearing down on me, the parting of the Red Sea. All those things are tied into this because the people thought that this was, in fact, the prophet that Moses had spoken about, and also because the Passover was near. So we're going to look now in John chapter 6, verses 15 through 21. We talked about 15 last week, but this is really a connecting point in what we look at today. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain... By himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. We'll look at this in three sections, and again, we'll look at Matthew and Mark to kind of round out the account as it took place. And so the first thing we'll look at is the setting. We see the setting in verses 14, excuse me, 15 and 16 here. And so Jesus, perceiving they were intending to take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And when evening came, his disciples went down 
to the sea. That's a very, very compressed version of what took place. And when we look at what Mark and Matthew add to this account, we read in Mark, and you want to put your thumb in Mark 6 and put your index finger in Matthew 14, because you might want to flip back and forth. I'm not going to put these verses on the screen for you. But Mark adds to this account, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat after the feeding of the 5,000 and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. He could have been bidding the crowd farewell, he could have been bidding the disciples farewell, but after the crowd was dispersed and the disciples were instructed to go to the other side, Jesus went to the mountain alone to pray. Matthew would add, that immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And he had sent the crowds away and went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And it was evening and he was there alone. So in this setting, we'll look at three things. The first one is this, the crowd dismissed. Now remember, this is a crowd of between fifteen and 25,000 people. There were 5,000 men, so you don't include in that the women and the children who had been a part of that people group. And so there is this massive crowd that really wants to take Jesus by force and make him king. And it is Jesus' responsibility to disperse this crowd, to send them back to their homes or perhaps into the neighboring villages to find a place where they could sleep. Now, many believe that the feeding of the 5,000 that we just looked at was the pinnacle of Jesus' public ministry. It's thought that perhaps the largest number of people that ever followed him in one group or in one setting would have been at this time where there were perhaps tens of thousands of people who were now enthralled at his very word, who were hoping to see more signs and more miracles, as we'll look at in the weeks ahead. And so just visualize 20,000 people and Jesus sending them away and them wanting to take him and make him king by force. Now certainly, in the minds of the disciples and in the crowd that had seen all that had taken place, this little boy's lunch multiplied to feed thousands and thousands of people. There had to have been a sense of awe and wonder at all that had taken place. This event was the capstone on all the healing that Jesus had done in the Galilee region. So there were just huge crowds that were following, on, following him. And there was perhaps, even within the hearts of the disciples, this expectation that Jesus was going to be coronated as the king. They had a very imperfect view and understanding of the kind of Messiah that Jesus is actually going to be. Not totally different from the crowd, but a very different commitment from the crowd. So it's speculated here that Jesus didn't want his disciples to get caught up in the enthusiasm or the frenzy that was taking place in this crowd. And so he wanted them to be removed so that he could have a concerted time of teaching and prayer and perhaps even fellowship with them to talk about and to debrief, if you will, on all the events that had taken place. So the first thing we see in our setting here is the crowd has been dismissed. Secondly, the disciples are now instructed. The disciples are instructed to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now Mark mentions the city of Bethsaida, which is close to where this massive feeding took place. And John mentions the eventual city of Capernaum. So Bethsaida was likely a staging ground where the disciples were going to meet together and get in a boat and assume that Jesus was going to come and meet them. And then they together were going to go over to the other side. I am sure 
that the disciples were not excited about getting into a boat and rowing some six or seven miles across the Sea of Galilee to make preparation for the next day. I am sure that they wanted to talk about all that they had just seen. How could you not want to talk about seeing Jesus take a little boy's lunchbox and multiply it to feed thousands and thousands of people? How could they not be excited about the enthusiasm that the crowd was expressing towards Jesus? Because if you remember in the very beginning, you had John the Baptist that had a group of followers, and many of them would go to follow Jesus, and there was this competing interest in the minds of the people, not so much with the disciples or in Jesus. And so there had to have been this excitement about what had taken place and this interest in talking about it and celebrating it and even speculating about what might come next. So the crowd's dismissed and the disciples are instructed and the Lord is absent. He's dispersed the crowd, he's instructed the disciples, and he himself has gone up into the mountain alone to pray. So what we see here is that the disciples have obeyed what Jesus has told them to do. They have gone and they have gotten a boat and they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting and it's obvious that Jesus isn't going to be making the trip with them. So all three versions mentioned that it was evening, indicating the time of day, and what's very different from our time clock and the Jewish time clock, is that evening typically means twilight. It's that time between dusk and darkness. So it's early evening, it's not quite dark, but the day is pretty much concluded. You know, the Sabbath day happens, the Sabbath begins on, at dusk. So a new day was about to begin based on their time clock. And so here it's likely sometime between 6 and 9 o'clock at night, which is important for a little bit later in the story. Sunset is nearing and the dark of night is going to quickly follow. It's been a very long day. It's been a spectacular day and it's coming to an end. And the disciples are going to make this journey to the other side of the sea and they're going to do it in the dark of night because they've waited and Jesus has not yet come. Now, since many of the disciples were fishermen, and most speculate that it was at least seven, it was not uncommon for them to be on the water at night. They often would fish at night, so this wasn't an overwhelmingly daunting task for them, but they were expecting Jesus to be with them, and he has not shown up. That's the setting. Now, the second section we're going to look at, I am going to call the analogies. These analogies that we're going to see in this miraculous event are important for us because it's a way for us to make sense out of what was taking place and how we can make application to this in our own life. So look at verse 17. So after waiting and Jesus not showing up, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. So they have waited and they've waited. It's no longer twilight. It is now the dark of night. And they are alone. So the lesson or the analogy is important for us to remember. And there's several important components that we're going to see in this. The first analogy is the boat. The disciples have been given the instruction to go and to get in the boat and to go to the other side. So the boat here is an analogy for our lives. Now, you and I not being fishermen, with the exception of Ken and maybe Perry and a couple of others that like the fish, I don't think about my life being in a boat. I have many, many times thought about life in a car. 
because I spend a lot of time in the car driving, and I think about the helicopter view of a massive interstate with all the different exchanges and seeing all these different cars going around, and some are getting into accidents and they're crashing, and some are speeding carelessly down the road, and some are actually there overwhelmed by their circumstances. And so I believe that this boat is an analogy for our individual lives. And some commentators would actually say that this boat is an analogy for the church itself. I don't think he'd be wrong in saying that. But we have to find a way to make this account fit for our own lives. And so the analogy here is the boat representing our lives. Second analogy is the sea. The sea is an analogy for the world that we live in. Now, in the Old Testament, the sea is often described as a symbol of chaos and disorder. It is a place of unpredictable danger. We see this in Psalm 69, verse 1 and 15, where the psalmist writes, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. So there is this idea that these disciples in this boat, in this massive sea, the Sea of Galilee, represents their lives in this chaotic and disorganized world. Being in a small boat in the middle of a sea during a raging storm is a place you do not want to be. I was talking with somebody several weeks ago about the Great Lakes up to the north and how these massive storms come about and they actually capsize massive ships. Think about being in a massive storm in a rowboat that can hold 12 to 15 people. The Sea of Galilee was notorious for great storms. Another analogy that we find in this account is the darkness. They aren't traveling across the sea in the bright of sunlight or even in the twilight, but in the absolute darkness of night. This darkness is an analogy for the spiritual condition of the world that we live in. Think about that. This place of chaos and disorder, this place of unpredictable danger. And there's a raging storm taking place. And here you and I are in a little rowboat in the dark of night trying to navigate across this dangerous place. You know, advertisers would have us believe that we live in a giant amusement park where everything is safe and everything can be tried and tested without any danger. Isn't that right? Or it's like a great shopping mall where you can go in and get whatever you want. It's a place where you're in control and everything in there caters to your every desire. Well, it could explain why people love amusement parks and why people love to go to the shopping malls because it's an escape from the reality of the dangerous and unpredictable chaotic world that our lives are taking place in. So we have the boat and the sea. We have this darkness. Fourthly now, we have the storm. If your life isn't in a storm, it's very likely going to be in one soon. It's just the way it is. I'm not a prophet of doom. <laughs> I've been in my fair share of storms. Some seem to have more storms than others. But we share this thing in common 
that our individual lives are filled with a variety of storms. Looking at verses 18 in the first part of 19. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles... Have you ever rowed three or four miles? When they had rowed three or four miles, the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Mark would add this in 6, 47 and 48. The boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, Jesus... And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. Straining at the oars. And then Matthew would add in verse 24 of chapter 14, But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And so this storm here is an analogy for the difficulties that we are going to face in our life. Now the Sea of Galilee sits at 700 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded by huge mountain peaks that are as much as 2,000 feet tall. And so when the sun sets and the air cools, it's very common for incredibly strong winds or drafts to come down into this valley of the Sea of Galilee. And it creates incredibly dangerous storms. So the disciples have just concluded what was probably one of the most exciting days of their lives, certainly an exciting period as they followed Jesus and saw the crowds just grow and saw Him heal so many people. And now they find themselves in the middle of the sea in a little rowboat in the midst of a raging storm. Now remember, Jesus is the one who has instructed them to leave where they were and to get into the boat and to go across to the other side. Now note the distance here. They have gone three to four miles. Or as Matthew and Mark would both say, they were in the middle of the sea. You know what that means? There is no turning back. There is no diversion that you can find. You have just got to go through the storm. You do not have another option. Now, Matthew and Mark indicate not only the distance that had traveled, but they also add this interesting little tidbit that it was the fourth watch of the night. you know what that means? It was likely between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning. They left sometime between 6 and 9 o'clock in the evening, which means that they were rowing in the Sea of Galilee anywhere from 6 to 9 hours facing this incredible storm and I'm quite sure wondering what is going to become of us. The storms are real and they're dangerous and they're scary. But Jesus has instructed them to get in the boat and to go. The fifth analogy that we see here is the appearance. This is where the theophany really comes into play. Verse 19, the second part of that. So here they are in the middle of the lake in this raging storm, rowing for hours and hours against the wind. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they became frightened. Matthew and Mark indicate they thought they were seeing a ghost or a phantom. Now, these are experienced fishermen. They're not sissies. And they're not scaredy cats. And they have never, ever, ever seen anything like this before. They've never seen a human form walking across the water, let alone 
walking across the water in a raging storm that had the potential to capsize their boat and to end their lives. The wind is howling and the sea is raging and the waves are coming over the sides of the boat and they see this human figure walking towards them in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the sea. And the analogy is very simply this, that he is with us in the storms of life. He is always with us in the storms of life. Jesus is the one that gave the instruction to get into the boat and to go to the other side. Jesus was not unaware of what was going to take place as they rode across that very difficult storm. And he arrived at the moment of their deepest despair. They've been rowing for hours. They've made little progress. You have to know that they were exchanging turns at the oars and they were getting incredibly tired. And at the deepest, darkest part of their storm, boom, God shows up. There He is. God has appeared. Now, it may seem to us in the midst of our storm that God isn't paying attention. Isn't that right? God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, when is this going to end? God, I don't like the way this feels. God, please come now. I don't think I can make it another day. But what we need to see here is that Jesus had not forgotten the disciples. He was not unaware of their predicament. If you look over Mark 6.48, it says that while Jesus was up in the mountain praying alone, seeing them straining at the oars... Jesus had never lost sight of where they were, what they were going through. And in His infinite wisdom, He planned to help them according to His perfect timing. Have you ever felt like God was a little bit late? I have. Have you felt like God's been a little slow to act? I have. But see, what we have to remember, what we have to teach ourselves to cling to is that God is always going to show up at the perfect time according to His timetable, not ours. You know, the reality is, in the midst of these raging storms that we find ourselves in, if we're more than a few feet off the shore, we're going to jump out of the boat and we're going to run back. God, I did not sign up for this. This was not a part of the bargain. You are obligated to me as your child to do something about this. But you see, when you're in the middle of it and you know you can't turn back and you are at the end of yourself, God is going to show up. It's a reminder that divine sovereignty, omnipotence and omniscience are never in a hurry. They are experienced in God's timing. Now why? Because God wants to just like we looked at last week. He wants to test our faith and He wants to strengthen our faith. You see, the difficulties expose what we really, truly believe in our hearts about God. He is good. He is faithful. He's ever-present. He's merciful. And so the testing exposes how much or how little faith we have in this great difficulty. And then God wants to strengthen our faith by showing Himself to be faithful and meeting us at the perfect time according to His plan and His purpose. 
the disciples never could have imagined what form the help from God was going to take, just as we can't. But I can assure you they weren't expecting Jesus to show up walking across the water in the midst of this storm. Here's Jesus walking on the water, suffering zero impact from the storm. He didn't have his head down and his arms back, and he wasn't trying to balance himself. He was just taking a stroll on the raging sea of Galilee out there to meet his disciples to show them exactly who he is. I don't think he was even wet. He was just out for a walk to come and meet the boys and let them know that he is there. As the creator of this universe, Jesus rules over it with supreme power. And my friend, that includes our seemingly insignificant little lives. He rules and he reigns on high. Number six, the sixth analogy that we see here, is the assurance. (laughs) Verse 20. Matthew, Mark say they think they've seen a ghost or a phantom. And Jesus is walking out on the water and he says, It is I, do not be afraid. Mark and Matthew both add the phrase, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. It's a reminder that we never need to be afraid because He is always with us. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't think it, And even if we're not presently experiencing it in the way that we need to, He is always there. And He says to you and I today, in the midst of our storm, it is I, do not be afraid. That little phrase, it is I, in the Greek, is actually the phrase, I am. In the midst of this storm, the disciples thinking they might be dead, Jesus shows up and says, don't be afraid, I am. Be still and know that I am God. All authority has been given to me, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In the midst of life's great storms, we can take refuge in the great I am of our lives God Himself. He is always with us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. We have this assurance from the truth of God's Word that He is always going to be there for us. Now, Matthew's account varies at this point from both Mark and John. They don't record this. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. And it doesn't mean it was a second walking on the water. We see this account in Matthew chapter 14, beginning in 28. A second miracle that John does not record here. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I think it's important here for us to inject the account in Matthew's Gospel for this very reason is that the assurance of God's presence with us means that we have to have great faith that He actually is there. You see, apart from the faith, we only have doubt. 
We only have a worldly hope. We don't have a confident assurance that God is going to be with us because we have to choose to exercise faith that God is going to be there. It is a journey of faith that we are on and trusting that He is with us and that nothing can or ever will change that, most especially the difficulty of the circumstances that we find our lives in. We must choose by faith to resist that feeling or that thought that God is not there, even when our circumstances tell us that we shouldn't have faith in God's presence. So Jesus shows up. He's walking on the water. He assures them that He is here. And then we see the seventh analogy here, and that is the provision. Verse 21, So they were willing to receive Him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This long and difficult, this incredibly dangerous journey has come to an end. They have received Jesus into the boat, And this subtle miracle that's here is immediately they were at the other side of the sea. Now remember, where were they when Jesus appeared to them walking on the water? They were three or four miles out. They were in the middle of the sea. Peter steps out of the boat, sinks, and Jesus pulls him in. And as soon as Jesus gets into the boat, they are at their final destination. It's another miracle that is recorded here. It is an analogy for the immediate relief that comes when we receive the assurance of His presence by faith. Let me say that again. It's an analogy for the immediate relief that comes when we receive the assurance of His presence by faith. Do you and I have to get to the end of our circumstance to be able to have faith in who God is and what God is doing? Does it have to be settled and done for us to have a confident insurance in who God is and what God is doing? Absolutely not. We are driven to walk by faith, and when we choose to appropriate faith in Him, in His provision, in His presence, in the midst of our circumstance, there is going to be immediate relief. I believe that's why Paul would say, that we are, to, we are to pray with supplication, giving thanks to God. I've lost that verse. Where did it go? Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Somebody help me. Be anxious, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Isn't that right? So there is this faith in the provision that God is going to make on our behalf that will provide for us immediate relief in the midst of this great storm. God tells us, take courage, do not be afraid, trust in me, I am always with you. And when we truly believe that, when we take it to heart, we're going to experience His perfect provision and His very powerful presence in our life. Now, Matthew and Mark record an additional miracle here. Mark 6.51 and Matthew 14.32 both indicate that when Jesus got into the boat, the wind stopped, again indicating His control over the universe He created. And when the wind stopped, they were there at the other side of the Sea of Galilee at Capernaum. So, a couple things about these miracles that we need to note. There are four in this entire account 
with Jesus walking on water, them arriving at their destination, Peter getting out of the boat and walking on the water, and then the calming of the wind instantly when Jesus got into the boat. It's interesting that John and Ken are teaching a class on biblical worldview, and we talked last week about the role of miracles within the biblical worldview, a Christian worldview. We believe in a supernatural God who is not bound by time and space and who has the ability to violate the natural laws that he himself has established. Isn't that right? But there are all kinds of people out there in the world and even within the Christian community who will want to disavow the supernatural. I had a professor in my Christian college who said, if I have to choose between a supernatural experience and a natural explanation, I will always choose the natural explanation. What do you say to that? I guess you don't believe in the God of the Bible, isn't that right? There are people within the Christian community who have said that Jesus was walking along the shore, not out in the middle of the water, And they saw him on the shore, and that was why he was able to reassure them and not be afraid, because they were really no more than just a few feet off the bank of the Sea of Galilee. But totally contradictory to what the Word of God says about the wind and the storm and the distance they had traveled and the time that they had traveled. And so what you and I need to do is we need to be assured that the miracles that we read about in the Bible are in fact real life experiences that show that God is able to intervene in the world that he created and override the natural laws of science that he himself has established. God is a God of the impossible. It is not a big thing for him to do what we read about in his word. It's not a big thing for Jesus to walk on the water. It wasn't a big thing for God to speak this universe into existence. It is not a big thing for God to meet the need in our individual storms of life because God is amazing. He is a God of the impossible. So let's look at the lessons that we can learn from this. There's four lessons we're going to look at. Number one, He has not forgotten us. Never. Never does God forget that we are His children. The disciples got into the boat, and verse 17 says that Jesus had not yet come to them. They didn't know, but they were about to experience a life-threatening storm. It would have been very easy for them to question Jesus' presence. Where was He? He was on the mountain praying. He was watching them strain against the oars. Today, where is Jesus? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, His children, the bride. We have not been forgotten. We are always under the watchful eye of our Lord and our Savior, and He isn't gotten sleepy, and He hasn't gotten distracted. He's going to intervene at the divine time of His will. Secondly, He will come to our aid. From the top of the mountain, Jesus could have easily calmed the storm and created safe travel for them, but he didn't do it. He could have just gone, shh, and it had been glass. But he didn't do that. He came to their aid, and he came to their aid 
personally. That's important. He came to their aid personally. Just as He came personally to save us from our sin, He comes to us personally in our time of need in the person of the Holy Spirit to rescue us from our difficulties. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, God coming to our aid does not necessarily mean that He is going to instantly change our circumstances, but I can promise you that God is going to make perfect His presence in your life so that you can continue to get through that storm as He tests and strengthens our faith. Thirdly, He will come in His time. Remembering that the disciples had been rowing for hours into the teeth of this storm and were making little to no progress. Jesus saw it and knew it and understood what they were going through and yet He came to them in His own time with His own purpose in mind. Who are you and I to question the purpose that God has in the circumstances or the storms He allows to happen in our life? We, we may never be able to understand or explain why these things have happened. But what we can do is this. We can submit ourselves to the sovereignty of God knowing that He loves us and He will take care of us in His time and in His way. We also have to remind ourselves that God is not indebted to us for anything, but He chooses to be generous and blesses us in spite of the lives that we live and the imperfect walk that we execute in our lives. Fourthly, the fourth lesson that we can learn in this is that His power is our provision. You and I cannot get through these storms on our own. We can try, but we're not going to get to where we're supposed to go if we're relying on ourselves to get through these storms, we need Him and we must depend upon Him and we must live our lives as if we depend upon Him in order to experience the power of His provision. It's one thing to say, yeah, I need God for everything. It's a totally different thing to live our lives that way. The disciples needed a miracle over the forces of nature. It was no more difficult for Jesus to overcome the laws of nature than it was for Him to write them in the beginning. And that means this, that God has the power to overcome all the difficulties and storms in our lives that we're ever going to face. He has the power to see us through that. Just as He provided for them in this miraculous way, He will also provide for us. If it is His will to not deliver us physically from the storms of life we're in, we must have great confidence that He will do so spiritually. You know, you and I fear physical death more than we fear anything else, don't we? 
We'll do anything and everything we can to prolong the days of our life. But what happens when this physical life is over? We are instantly ushered into an eternity, either with God or separated from God. If you're going through great difficulty physically, and it brings about the end of your life prematurely, you can praise God because it's going to mean you're going to get to be with Jesus that much faster. Yet we don't want to let go of this physical life, do we? And I'm not saying that we should throw on the towel and just die so we can go to heaven. God has a plan and a purpose for each of our lives. But we need to cling to Him. We need to cling to spiritual truth and spiritual reality more than we do the things of this world. Whatever we face, wherever we go, we have to know that God is with us. He'll be there to provide for us. And we have to, by faith, believe that that's true from the depth of our heart. He will test that in our lives. He will reveal to us how much and how little faith we have. But the relief comes in this quiet stillness and knowing that He is and He will take care of me. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, You are a God of the impossible. You are a God of the miraculous. Your ability to change the hearts of men and women is a miracle. Your ability to impugn your holiness and your righteousness into sinful man is a miracle. Your ability to relieve the burden of our storms is no big thing for you. It's a difficult thing for us to come to the end of ourselves, to get to the bottom so we can only look up. But we, Father, by faith, trust that the storms in life teach us how to do that more effectively than if we never had a care in the world. God, teach us to depend upon you for everything. Teach us to trust you in spite of the physical circumstances, the spiritual battles, the emotional trauma that we face in our lives. We thank you for these Accounts that remind us of the great and powerful God that you are, the love you have for your people. May we give you thanks for what you've done for us through Christ and making us a part of your people to be with you for all of eternity. We give thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.